Hello and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you've left for me in the comment section of my Q&A videos or have sent to me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. Okay, a couple announcements and things to uh, take up here before we get into the question answering phase. Um, first off, um, I'm getting a lot of positive feedback from you guys on these long form Joe Rogan style conversational interviews that I'm doing with people. I really enjoy doing them and I have a lot more lined up to do. So. Um, they are going to keep coming either through my Thursday videos or through my podcast. And there have been so many opportunities coming my way with this um, and so many interesting people to talk to that it's actually been a little hard to get back to that basics of Scientology series. So I got to do that too. And it's just a, you know, kind of a balancing act. But some of these opportunities are just wonderful. And I want to, as soon as I do one of these interviews, I want to get them out to you guys. So um, anyway, so it's all just kind of rolling out. And I, you know, sort of have a master plan for my channel, but it's always is, you know, Room, room by various uh, you know possibilities and things that, that come my way. So anyway, you guys seem to be enjoying the content so far, so I'm just going to kind of keep rolling it out. Um, also, this last week I did a bonus video on Thursday because um, I saw one person who was kind of like, dude, you know, shorter videos, you know, I can't, can't watch all these big long ones. And I felt a little bit bad about that, even though it was just one comment. Um, and there was the Luis Garcia case too. Um, comment on. So I put up a short live stream this week also about that and my thoughts about taking on Scientology in the legal arena. So if you guys haven't checked that out, you can do so. It's uh, on my channel for this last week. And the podcast I did this week was with um, Nitai, Nitai, sorry, I always go to the E, but it's Nitai. Um, and he is a former uh, Hare Krishna. So we had a great time talking about that stuff, and uh, there's been a lot of positive feedback on that so far. So if you're at all interested in that aspect of life, and I do a lot of comparisons to Scientology and our talk about that, then you can check that out. And also, I wanted to validate, last week I threw some names out, some uh, shout out to some of my more recent Patreon supporters. I wanted to throw some more names out of people actually going back a ways that I had missed, because it's really important to me to acknowledge you guys uh, for the support that you give to my channel. And I know all of you guys don't necessarily, you know, want or you're not looking for an acknowledgement, but it's, but I want to give you one because it means so much to me to um, get the support from you guys in order to keep my channel going and keep, you know, keep things going for myself here so that I can do this as a full-time occupation. Uh, so, Klaus Olson upped his um, monthly uh, allotment there. Uh, Sierra Bolly Cakes Boof, uh, I think I got that name right. Dave Stewart, Donna Fletcher upped hers. Um, Vector 20, thank you very much for your generous contribution. Uh, Andrea Struble upped hers as well, thank you. Jan Rosenthal, Chip Gallo uh, upped his. Allison Williams came on board. Jerry Cunningham, Reg Gilroy, Sandy Del Rey upped hers. Uh, Cecilia Smith, Martin Rowe, Italian Viper upped hers. Thank you very much. Uh, Kat Combs, Michaela Reidmuller. Uh, again, I'm sorry if I'm butchering names here. Uh, Claire Morrison and Peta Hall. Okay, so that I think that catches us up on everybody that I have not given a shout out to in a while. So again, thank you very much. And if you're enjoying my channel, take a look at my Patreon page. The link is below in the description to this video. And uh, also it's, you know, in one of the corners here um, when I do these videos. So let's go ahead and get on now with your questions. 
Nick C. When you were on staff in Santa Barbara, did you ever come across or hear anything about David Mayo and the Advanced Ability Center? Or was it fair gamed out of existence before you arrived on the scene? No, this is a great question because actually I arrived in Santa Barbara for services in 1985. We had been living up in a little town called Santa Maria, which is sort of a farming community about an hour and a half, uh, sort of north, northeast of Santa Barbara, um, past, you know, on the other side of a mountain pass and stuff. And I was going to high school there and my dad had um, gone into business with another Scientologist and so that's why we moved from LA up there. And then when I was in the summer between my sophomore and junior years of high school, my dad just kind of out of the blue said, why don't you go down to the local org in Santa Barbara and check it out and just see for yourself what Scientology is all about. And I hadn't really done anything in Scientology since I was like seven or eight. Uh, as far as official courses, I had done some children's courses and study courses when I was a kid. But Scientology didn't really have a lot of child-oriented services in the 1970s like they do now. And I had, you know, just kind of not been super interested in it. I had still been fully immersed in the lingo and the, the you know, the, like the language and the concepts of it just through my upbringing. So I was very much in a Scientology household. We even, you know, drilled TRs and things like that when, and at home. But I had not done formal Scientology services. So I arrive in Santa Barbara and almost right away I was hearing rumors about some squirrel group. And this was David Mayo's group. Scientology refers to people who take Scientology out of official church sanctioned buildings like, the, like their local city level churches. If you take that stuff out and you start your own group, then you are a squirrel. And uh, that is definitely what David Mayo was being called. And I didn't need any big handling because I didn't know anything about David Mayo. So all I was told was he was this big suppressive person and some people had been siphoned off from the org and there had been a bit of a conflict in the Santa Barbara field over this. But I only heard this in little bits and pieces. Nobody would sit me down and explain it all to me. And I didn't really know enough about the subject. I was fresh in. I was, you know, kind of newly excited about the idea of doing this communications class, which, by the way, was I jumped right into the biggest class you can do in the, in the major services area. I didn't do the communications course. I did what was called the professional TRs course, which is the, the most advanced communications course that Scientology offers. And I just jumped right in. I, I, I don't really don't know why, except it seemed like a good idea at the time. And it was something my dad kind of wanted me to do because he had the idea that I would become a Scientology auditor. And this course was the first course, this and the student hat, which is their study course, their major, major study course. Um, these two courses would, you know, kind of give me the grounding I needed in order to actually be able to learn and do the formal auditor training courses. So that was sort of my, my, what my dad's idea was. I just wanted to be able to talk to girls better and I wanted to be able to get dates and I was, you know, kind of introverted and, and, and kind of shy and, and had a real hard time with that with social interaction. So I thought, you know, okay, well, let's, you know, they had this special deal on this package of, of these classes and so I dived right in on that. So um, I know I'm kind of all over the place here, but I'm just kind of explaining the situation and where my head was at. I didn't care about David Mayo. I didn't care about suppressive people forming, you know, groups down the road. And it was literally down the road. It was like, I think, I don't know the exact location of the place, but I know it was, I think it was, uh, you know, 
half hour at the most, you know, from the from where the org was located in downtown Santa Barbara. So, um, so there was still the upset and the and the um, and the sort of the discomfort and the and, and the anger about that was still pretty fresh uh, with with some of the staff there in Santa Barbara, and it was being run at the time. The org was being run by two Sea Org members, and this was my very first introduction to the Sea Org. I had no idea who these people were, but they were running. The org. There was one of them who was uh, Carol Monroe. She was the executive director, and um, uh, Hoy Seth. I'm trying to remember her first name. Anyway, there was a woman who was uh, an old school Scientologist, been around for a lot of years, and she was the senior CS or the senior case supervisor. So her job was to oversee all the tech delivery, the courses, and the auditing, and make sure that it was being done right. And she personally came and checked my TRs when it was time for me to get my, my pass on the course at the end. Uh, she did it in person because you're supposed to video it, but the video machine was broken. So she just came down and watched me. So, um, so it was good times. Uh, not. <laughs> anyway, that was sort of the scene. Um, as far as uh, further along, after I joined staff in 2000, or sorry, in um, 1997, and I went down to Los Angeles, is where I started seeing bulletins that had been revised by David Mayo, and these were called, they, they were now being referred to as mayonnaised tech, right? This was the, this was the slur, and um, David Mayo's name was Mud. And so there was a lot of blaming everything that was ever wrong with Scientology on David Mayo. And he had supposedly, I was told when I went down to L.A. and I was now at a Sea Org base and I was, you know, surrounded by Sea Org members and staff from other orgs. I was doing training there. Um, I was told that David Mayo was the single cause of everything wrong with Scientology over the last many years. He had messed up the happiness rundown he, by, it, by making people run every single command of it when you were supposed to use the e-meter and only run what responded on the e-meter. He had messed up the OT levels. Uh, OT5 had been mayonnaised, you know, mayo knots is what they called it, knots being new aerodynetics for OTs. That's OT level 5. Uh, six and seven, actually, for Scientology, and apparently he had corrupted all of it. I came to find out much later, of course, that he probably wrote most of it uh, in the first place, not L. Ron Hubbard, and that that was not necessarily a bad thing, but, you know, it, within the world of Scientology. But, of course, once he was declared a suppressive, he became the patsy for everything. And that, um, and I saw, I actually got hold of a copy of the old bulletin on how to do TRs that had been revised heavily by David Mayo. And it was, you know, there was a lot more information in it and a lot more clarification of why the various things were done in each of the steps of the TRs. And apparently this was considered this horrible high crime. And, and it, the, the bulletin was only being kept around so people could do false data stripping on it, which is a procedure to rid yourself of false information. Uh, it's completely biased because the, 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 you know, whether the information is true or false completely depends on whether somebody's telling you it's true or false in the world of Scientology. So, um, so it's not really a very useful procedure. It sounds like it'd be amazing, but no, it's really not. So um, that was sort of the, the, the whole picture of my early experiences with David Mayo. And it wasn't until much later, after I got out of Scientology, that I actually got the whole rundown on who he was and what he was about and what had actually happened in Santa Barbara and how the church had fair-gamed him out of existence, so to speak, uh, with his Advanced Ability Center. So that's my story on that. 
Robert Tobias. Whether it is the Ten Commandments, the teachings of Jesus Christ, Buddha, or Muhammad, all major religions have a code of moral conduct. What exactly is Scientology's code of moral conduct for its followers? Okay, there's two answers to this question because um, in the early days, in the early 50s actually, L. Ron Hubbard wrote something called the Code of Honor. And then years later, in 1980, after the whole um, GO and Guard, you know, the Guardian's Office Snow White program fiasco with Scientologists, including his wife, in jail or going to jail, you know, being indicted, Hubbard wrote a book called The Way to Happiness, which uh, he labeled a common sense guide to moral principles and, uh, you know, sort of a, a non, a secular moral code that didn't rely on anything religious in nature in order to back it up. Um, and both of these are used. One of them is sort of broadly you know, used uh, or, or disseminated or talked about, passed out to the public. That's the, the way to happiness. There's, uh, it's easy to find. Uh, there's even a whole foundation that does nothing but uh, get people to donate money to distribute uh, custom-made copies of the way to happiness pamphlets out to people. Uh, so you can get one for your business and it has a, you know, your logo and picture your business or something. You can pass these things out. And the way to happiness all by itself in and of itself is perfectly fine. There's really nothing horrible and awful in it. It has very common sense principles like don't kill or don't murder rather, um, don't, you know, don't, don't engage in theft, don't drink to excess. Uh, you know, take care of your teeth and your body, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you, but don't do unto others as you don't want them to do to you. I mean, both of those versions of the golden rule are in there. And there's a lot of, a lot of different things. Support a government, you know, that, that, that is uh, run for and by the people. I mean, you know, again, pretty common sense stuff. And that's the moral code most Scientologists would tell you immediately is their moral code and what they, you know, promulgate and, and, and promote and, and talk about. The code of honor is a much deeper thing, and that is something that not every Scientologist follows, but they kind of try to. And they, they talk about it in, in terms of uh, how it's, you know, it's a higher level of, of ethics and it's, it's tougher to deal with. And let me give you a couple points of it because it's really not talked about very much. It's actually on, I'm reading here from the Scientology website. Uh, you can find it there. And Hubbard says that uh, no one, he tells Scientologists, this was written in 1954, and he said, no one expects the code of honor to be closely and tightly followed. An ethical code cannot be enforced. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, they do a lot of enforcement of this in Scientology. There's a lot of codes in Scientology. There's an auditor's code, code of a Sea Org member, code of a supervisor. I mean, there's, there's lots of these little ethical codes in Scientology for various functions. The code of honor is the one that they will use. They'll, they'll haul this thing out when you're in ethics trouble and they'll run you through it and make you write overts and withholds against this code. Uh, you know, times that you failed to follow it, the sp specifics with time, place, form, and event of each incident or time that you failed to uphold the, the principles. Um, so what are the principles? Well, let's see. Number one, never desert a comrade in need, in danger, or in trouble. Now, of course, Scientology disconnection violates this point 100% of the time. Uh, so, again, this is just more of the hypocrisy of Scientology, which I thought you might find interesting. Uh, here's another one, too. Never withdraw allegiance once granted. Now, that's ridiculous because, of course, your allegiance is yours to withdraw whenever you want. 
and it's hardly that you know a code of honor to withdraw allegiance once granted if the person you've sworn allegiance to changes and goes off the rails or becomes insane or starts doing things that you can't morally agree with then it's very much part of your own integrity to withdraw your allegiance to them. That's exactly what happens with Scientologists who find out how awful and crappy the church actually is. So that one's a little bit silly to live with. Um, three, never desert a group to which you owe your support. Well, on the surface that's fine, but again, what happens when the group withdraws its support to you? You know, it's a bit of a two-way street. So, sure, I'll support a group that supports me and to which I owe my support. I don't know what it would be that uh, would cause me to owe my support to a group. But if I did, sure, I'd keep that up as so long as I could agree with the principles and ideals of the group and what it's actually doing in the real world. Um, never disparage yourself or minimize your strength or power. You know, a little nice motivational business there. Never need a praise, approval, or sympathy. This is a big one in Scientology, not needing to be praised or admired, which really means that this is what you tell yourself when you've been working your ass off for three straight days and nobody cares or gives you any validation or acknowledgement. You sort of pull this out and look at it and go, well, you know, I don't need acknowledgement. <laughs> Uh, anyway, there's a whole bunch of other points here on this. There's actually, I think it goes down to 15 points. Um, yeah, don't desire to be liked or admired. Never fear to hurt another in a just cause. Uh, of course, that all depends on what the word just means there and whether you truly are involved in a just cause. This is the one Scientologists use to uh, rationalize or justify uh, fair gaming people, you know, because, hey, I, I will not fear to hurt another in a just cause. I'm, you know, the end justifies the means, in other words. So this is pretty much the nonsense that this code of honor adds up to. And those are the two codes I think I'll comment on for now um, that I think answer that question. Patricia Benevente. If you could please comment on how you felt when you realized that you could be an autonomous person that nobody has the right to direct your destination, how you operate your life, the rules, the order you want to establish for yourself. What was it like? Is it still something that you realize you are so grateful for that you're still continually excited about and are working on it, but with total peace and freedom? Don't you think the realization that you are autonomous is a huge one after having been in a group where you are being told what to do, when to do it, how to do it, and what to think? and what you are allowed to feel or not to feel. Well, obviously, yeah, it feels great. And of course, autonomy is a you know relative term because of course now I'm in the real world where I'm paying taxes and having to work and keep a roof over my head. And of course I'm married now. So you know autonomy is a relative term when it comes to a marriage. Not that I'm complaining at all. Marriage is wonderful. But it's, you know, again, it's a two-way street. There's give and take, there's back and forth, there's compromise. Um, but as far as uh, this, the, you know, the, the, the spirit of your question, of course, is that I am able to make my own decisions and decide for myself what I do and don't want to do. And that is a freedom that is wonderful. I think how this probably manifested for me in, in hindsight, looking back over the last few years, is that I really went kind of hog wild on myself. 
And that was very necessary, very needed, very much part of, you know, whatever you want to call in terms of the recovery process from being in such a restrictive group for so long. Um, and I really kind of pushed back on or didn't really want to be part of other groups. I really liked this idea of having my own freedom and, and, and that sort of thing. And um, of course getting married is now I'm in this little group. But now I'm kind of looking again to see if there aren't groups out there that I really do want to be part of and, and want to um, participate in and, and, and you know maybe even in some degree take um, you know, leadership roles or something in. Uh, I mean, I'm sort of doing that now as I'm, a, I'm on the board of directors of, of a local group here, the Secular Hub. That's really cool. Um, but I'm, I, I've noted now that I've had these years of freedom uh, that I was sort of, you know, uh, avoiding group uh, involvement. And I think so uh, that you know, maybe part of where I've gotten to now is kind of looking back again and, and looking at, okay, well, maybe there are some groups I'd like to be part of and, and get involved in. And, and I'm just, you know, just looking, just checking that out. But I'm still sort of enjoying my personal freedom so much that it's a little, it's, it's, just, it's just barely little, you know, little, little tentacles of, well, what about that over there? Maybe not, maybe, maybe not. So I think there's still, you know, work to do here. I think I'm still a work in progress on, on all of that. Um, and I, I don't know, I don't really know that I can say a whole lot more about it than that, but I hope that helps give some idea of the process I've been going through. Stephen Willis. A while ago, I remember you mentioned meeting Ron Miscavige Sr. when he gave you sales training once in the Sea Org. Did this tap into LRH Tech, or was it his pre-Scientology sales experience he used? You said he taught something along the lines that making a sales is a series of mental transactions. Sounds interesting. Care to elaborate? Yeah, Ron Miscavige Sr. came down to um, the pack base and gave us briefings a couple times in preparation for doing big, huge sales drives for new releases of Scientology materials when we would do those events. You know, we talk about those events all the time and how they're sort of mind controlling indoctrination events, but they're also sales events. We I really don't talk about that this that much, but almost all of these events have a new release of some kind that they're selling. And the idea is that all the staff on an all-hands basis after each event go hog wild selling these things. So Ron Miscavige Sr., of course, having sales experience pre-Scientology and kind of knowing what he's talking about, would come and, and, do, and do these briefings to us. And, uh, and it was funny because I was on his show um, when I was out in Philly and he and I actually talked about this. And um, his methodology, or basically the, 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 the simplicity of what he would tell us as far as doing sales was, was um, something I still remember because I think it, it, it's working. I, I think it works. When I did sales, this is how I went about doing it. And it tended to work. And that was that uh, doing a sale is a small series of agreements. You, you, know, you get this agreement and then you move on to the next one and then you move on to the next one. You don't go from here straight to the sale. The sale's here. But first you have to gradually get the person to agree to a number of things. And uh, by having that clear in your head as to where you're trying to, to take the person and getting them to agree with each step along the way you get them where you want to take them. Now, of course, this is also cult indoctrination 101. 
but it's also sales 101. So it really, you know, in terms of cult indoctrination, a lot of that has to do with your, excuse me, has to do with your intention and what you're, you know, what, what are you trying to do. And um, the, these series of agreements can be, um, it was never implied or told to us that we should be lying to people. That wasn't his shtick at all. So I didn't particularly get that from him. I got the lies and the distortions and the half-truths and the exaggerations that you tell people in selling them things in Scientology from L. Ron Hubbard. Because that was the, uh, for example, I've talked about acceptable truths and, and how you have to tell people something that they'll accept as the truth rather than the real truth in order to, you know, avoid a messy PR situation or in order to get them thinking along the lines that you want them thinking rather than giving them the whole truth and doing full disclosure and then they can make up their own mind based on all the facts. Instead, as a salesperson, I got the idea, again, not, not actually from Ron Miscavige Sr., but from L. Ron Hubbard, that you lead them by the nose where you want them to go. And of course, Hubbard also had a whole lot of stuff in Scientology about controlling people. And there's this quote out there about how, um, you know, you have to lie to people in order to control them. Uh, that wasn't particularly a principle that we were using in Scientology overtly. That was, um, that, that quote's kind of taken out of context when it's used, um, I, I think, uh, in order to, to present this idea that Scientologists knowingly lie to people in order to control them. It's not, it's more subtle than that. Let me just put it that way. Uh, it took me years to realize that I had gotten to this place where I was lying to people all the time. It's, it wasn't an overt thing on my part. It was, I sort of, as a salesperson, I was sold on how to do this, right? So anyway, Miscavige's, um, you know, Ron Miscavige Sr.'s method was this, you know, series of agreements. And with that, we would drill, we would practice with each other on that. And I thought that um, that was, you know, pretty workable. And I ended up years later um, doing sales, doing, uh, I was a reg for the OT levels. I didn't know how to, I didn't know what was on the OT levels. I didn't know anything about them, nor could I. I wasn't anywhere near getting on the OT levels, but I had to sell them anyway. So I would apply this information about agreements and get people to agree that, you know, Scientology was a good thing. L. Ron Hubbard knew what he was talking about. Um, these, these skills, these abilities, these perceptions that they would get from, from the OT levels were a good thing, you know, they, yes, that would be true. That would be amazing to have those things. Good. So you're just, you know, kind of gradually getting them up to the point where you get them to agree that paying for these OT levels, even without knowing what's on them, would be the most amazing thing in the world and would give you all the superpowers you could ever want. And so... The next step being, good, now let's figure out how to get them paid for. And then you start getting them on a payment plan or you get them to go mortgage their house or you figure out whatever needs to be done in order to get them to hand over the cash. So um, that was what I learned. Uh, I still, you know, sort of think with that, but I don't do sales particularly now. At least I don't try to. I don't, I don't consider myself a salesperson. I don't like particularly asking for, for money from people. Um, if it's a cause I believe in, I, I will, you know, the words will come out of my mouth. Like when I, you know, sort of uh, ask you guys to be Patreon supporters, I think that's kind of a sales thing. But, um, but in life and in the big wide world, I don't do sales work anymore because it's not something I enjoy. But uh, I hope that clarifies or gives you some more information about how sales and, and, and how we were, were taught about that. If I, if I lift anything out or if there's still any unanswered questions on that, just let me know.
Kristen Halloran. I don't know why I am surprised by the fact they operate with cash. Scientology and efficiency don't seem to go together ever. Usually cash is looked upon as having the most liability, the chance of theft or loss, hard to track, etc. Were there ever any problems of theft of cash in the Sea Org? I imagine some just kept their little cache of money somewhere. Then again, maybe they are locked down so tight they wouldn't dare. Just another quirk, I suppose. Did you receive pay stubs or receipts of any kind? Was there no need for tracking since everyone was a volunteer? Uh, okay, so the Sea Org operates a lot with cash. They pay the Sea Org members every week with cash. They're, we don't get checks. Checks would sometimes be distributed or given out when you're out on project. Um, but most of the time, they were actually depositing the money straight into your bank account. Uh, they'd just go down to Wells Fargo or U.S. Bank and, and, uh, and put your mission funds, is what it was called, directly into your bank account. And then you would have to account for every single penny of it with receipts. Uh, that, was, that was very, very tightly controlled. The Sea Org is fanatical to the penny on accounting for every single dime, penny, whatever, nickel, that is given from the Sea Org to its staff members. Um, you do have receipts that are given when you get your pay every week um, that has the breakdown of the Social Security payments and FICA and all that. Um, that was all shown on there. And, um, and they're very, 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 very uh, accounting of all of that. You know, very, very aware of, of needing to account for every single little bit. So it is difficult. It would, in fact, it would be damn near impossible unless you were starting to cook the books as a treasury person to steal money out of that system. I mean, it, you, I, I guess theoretically you could do it, but there's checks, there's balances, there's things they do, and everything is audited. Um, every year, you know, they do a very, very thorough tax accountancy audit uh, on all of the books of all the churches of Scientology. So. Um, so yeah, they use a lot of cash. They have cash, you know, th being thrown around, but they're pretty, pretty careful about accounting for all of it. Um, and that's, you know, pretty much what I can say about that. Sherry Sporn. I was just listening to Aaron Smith Levin talking about the Aftermath Foundation, which I support as much as I can. I was thinking about Aaron's interview with Nathan Rich and wondered if some of the people leaving Scientology are kids who might otherwise be homeless like Nathan was. Do they still have minors in the Sea Org? Yeah, they do still have minors in the Sea Org, and as far as I know, they're still recruiting minors into the Sea Org as long as they get parents' permission. Because the Sea Org is desperate for people, and more people leave than come in, and you know, it's this, it's this constant hamster wheel to, you know, to nowhere uh, as far as trying to get more and more staff for the Sea Org. Um, but because of all of the negative PR that the church has received over the last couple decades on this subject. You know, first they stopped letting Sea Org members have kids, then they forced abortions because they, you know, were going to kick them out, but they didn't want to kick them out because they had to hold on to them. So then that whole thing flapped and became this gigantic media disaster for them. So now, as I understand it, when people are leaving the Sea Org, they take great pains to try to make sure that the person has a job, place to land. Uh, I mean, this actually happened with me, too. I had a place to go with my mom, who they thought at the time was still a Scientologist in relative good standing, so they didn't have a big problem with me, um, you know, getting in a car after I left and going up to Sacramento to be with her. 
um, but they want to control where you go and they try to get you a job with Scientologists, they try to get you a place to live with Scientologists, and they try to, you know, still, they're still controlling these people, but they are taking action to try to make sure that they don't end up on the street and they don't end up, you know, uh, creating some problem or flap for the church itself. It's out of their own self-interest that they do that, not because they actually care about these people. They actually don't care about them. When people leave the Sea Org, they want to kick them to the curb and they treat them like utter crap. But they know because, you know, the Aftermath Foundation now exists, there's a lot of support out here in this community, and when we hear horror stories of abuse coming out of the church, we talk about it because we want to stop the abuses. So the fact that they're trying to take action to see that people you know, land safely somewhere and have some kind of support system coming out of the Sea Org, even if it's a Scientology-controlled support system, it's still, I would say that's still something better than nothing. But of course, we want to get it you know, where the person has full autonomy over their life when they leave the Sea Org, but that takes some time to, to get across to a person too. So anyway, that's what I understand the current situation to be. I've only heard about that. I haven't talked with people who've actually been through that. So I can't say too much more about it in terms of like, does this always happen? Is it 100% of the cases? You know, I think with minors who leave the Sea Org, they pretty much go back home. I mean, they still have their parents. Uh, if the parents are Sea Org members, then they're going to go probably to a relative or they're going to go to some local Scientologist who's willing to take them in and they'd, and they'd figure that out. But, um, but I think for the most part, you know, when they recruit minors, they're recruiting them out of Scientology homes where the Scientologists let them go, you know, because they have to sign off to let them go. And it's really hard to do that when you have non-Scientology parents. I, I did a couple of those and they were, they were difficult. With a Scientologist family, you can exert pressure through the church on the parents to get them to buckle and, uh, you know, and bend the knee to the recruiters so that they will let their kids go. But when the kids almost routinely end up bombing out, they just go back home. So that's what I've seen. I've seen that a lot more than I've seen anything else. Uh, as far as my own experience goes. So I hope that, um, hope that gets that across. Okay, so no flash answers this week because um, in the long queue of all the questions that I've got to answer for you guys, I don't have any real simple ones anymore. I, I, so if you guys have any easy to answer, quick uh, flash questions for me, go ahead and put them in the comment section here on YouTube. Also, I have a special offer for you guys. Um, I, you know, I said I don't like to do sales, and now I'm gonna now I'm gonna do a sale. Um, I have uh, gotten uh, I have a quantity of my book, Scientology A to Zenu, an insider's guide to what Scientology is really all about. You can get this book on Amazon. It's like twenty bucks, but I have a little supply of them here. So this is a limited time offer, I guess. In terms of, well, I guess we'll see if anybody at all is interested in this. I I don't know if you are or not. But I'm more than happy to autograph copies of the books that I have here and get them out to you guys if you want to order them from me specifically. And in order to do that, what you would do is you would PayPal me $25 so that I have some money for shipping the book out to you. And I will sign it. And if you give me a little description in the PayPal notice of what you would like me to say or who you are and something about yourself, then I will make it a custom autograph for you. So I have absolutely no idea if anyone is interested in that, but I thought I'd throw that out there at the end of the show here today. 
Thank you very much for coming around. Please leave any questions, comments, or feedback in the comment section below here on YouTube, and I will see you guys next week. Bye-bye.